this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, through to chapter 4, verse 1. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward." It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. There is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also serve a master in heaven. It's the word of the Lord. Well, it was International Women's Day, of, uh, Day on Friday, wasn't it? International Women's Day. Um, and did, did anyone make a, a, a fuss over the women in their life? Yeah. Every day. Every day. <laughs> so good answer. Good answer, Mark. Good answer. The wife is sitting there going... Uh. <laughs> That's excellent, Mark. <laughs> no, very good. Very good. Um, <laughs> well, uh, it's, uh, it was a day, it's a day where we have the opportunity to show um, the women in our life uh, how important they are to us. And um, uh, I, suppose, I suppose I didn't understand or didn't know where this International Women's Day really came from. Uh, it's internationally recognised, obviously, it's International Women's Day, but it stems, it's been going for 44 years on March the 8th. Why they chose March the 8th, I'm not 100% sure, but I looked up where it came from, and the origins date back to 1909, in the early 20th century, when the United States observed the very first international or national Women's Day. Of, uh, Women's Day. And it was in honour of the 1908 garment workers who um, where there was about 15,000 women, many who were immigrants, who marched through New York to rally at Union Square to demand economic and polit political rights. Because at that stage, they had no rights. There was no rights for women at that stage. And so I thought about Australia. Well, where did Australia fit into that? And I suppose I never really considered it, really, but it wasn't until 1884 that women were given the right to own property. But you could only own property as a woman if you were married. So if you weren't married, you had no right to ownership of property, which... Um, yeah, so it's, that, it says something about what the society looked like. The right to attend university was granted to women in 1880, and in 1887, Melbourne University Medical School started to accept female applicants. Now, it sounds like a long time ago. It's like 130, 40 years ago. Um, but considering Australia was already a nation for 100 years, 
and Melbourne University was founded in the 1850s, it was a long time with men as the sole authority in those spaces, wasn't it? So at that stage, women's rights were starting to open up a little bit, but it wasn't like all of a sudden women had all, all rights and stuff like that. So all of a sudden, uh, there was still a lot of expectation on what women would be. So they'd be the ones that, would be, when you're married, you stop work or you don't work, and you live at, like, at home as wives and mothers. Now, I, I found some, uh, if we go to the next slide, I found some on the internet, as you do, I found some, uh, what the 1950s looked like for women. And I know some of you were here in the 1950s, and uh, you might have seen some of this. Um, in the 1950s, the, the wife or the woman was to have dinner ready, to plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready on time for his return. This is a way of letting him know that you have been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. <laughs> Most men are hungry when they come home, and the prospect of a good meal, especially his favourite dish, is part of the warm welcome needed. So in the 50s, you needed to be like that. We've got another one, we've got a few of them. I didn't bring all of them, because uh, in the 50s, we need to be well organised. You need to clear away the clutter, make one last trip through the main part of the house just before your husband arrives, run a dishcloth over the tables. So I think, of, I think of my wife, who's, who's always busy and always uh, got lots of different things on, really positive things. She's either working or she's taking the kids out for some adventure or she's meeting up with someone or discipling someone. And I think, oh, wow, she's got to do all that as well. My word, poor, poor lady. We've got one more, I think. One more. Peace of mind. Minimise all noise. At the time of his arrival, eliminate all noise of the washer, dryer or vacuum. Encourage children to be quiet. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Good luck with that, wives. <laughs> it's like, wow. Now, things have changed uh, drastically from, that, from those sort of times, haven't they? And um, I don't expect my wife to have the kids totally quiet when they get home. I don't expect the, the meal on the table. I don't, I don't expect sort of that. And um, I suppose maybe I'm a little bit more ignorant about that maybe still happens in our, in our society. But... International Women's Day perhaps is, a, is a, a starting point to help us to understand, actually, the rights of women in and through our world. Now, we've got a text in front of us this morning that, that Paul addresses some of these household codes uh, a little bit. Paul addresses some big issues of his day, but are obviously still issues of our day as well, and probably will continue to be problematic because whenever we read the words submit and obey in Scripture, if it refers to people, we can get uncomfortable. We can start to squirm a little bit, or we can take it out of context, or we can utilise it in a negative way um, in authority situations. But this morning we'll find that Paul's word is seeking to transform the foundations of where authority lied in society. Through the verses of Colossians 3, Paul challenges any social norm that gives authority to any one person, especially when it comes to the household rights, I suppose. And hopefully, at the conclusion of this morning, we'll come to the understanding that Christ alone holds ultimate authority. Not one person. Christ alone holds ultimate authority. 
So as we continue with our series entitled Continue, remember a few weeks back we looked at eagles and chickens, so you can have the slide up, we looked at the eagles and the chickens. If you're here, you remember the eagle and the chicken, um, and we said that a changed reality in Christ leads to a changed conduct. And a changed reality leads to this new conduct. We're created to be eagles, to soar like eagles, but often we are chickens. So this morning we're going to see how this changed reality of who we are works itself out in a household setting because we need to remember that Christ alone holds ultimate authority. Let me pray. Loving God, we pray this morning that your word will... um, will penetrate into our lives in a way that we will have a, a new reality, a new lived-out reality. May you help us to understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, through our text today, we have a collection of New Testament passages that um, are around these verses as well that, to our contemporary Western ears, seem to push maybe outdated agendas a little bit like what we were seeing up, up on, the, on, the, on the wall there. When we think of the household in the context of Scripture, we've got to be careful that we don't assume that what Paul's writing was in the same setting that we live in. So Paul was writing to a very different world, wasn't he? And it was a world where men dominated, and women, children, and slaves were subservient to the male in the household. That was the world that Paul was writing to. It was a world where, where, um, where, where women, children, and slaves didn't have rights. There was no International Women's Day as such. It was a world um, that posed a, posed a problem for a world that was beginning to shift its understanding towards this, this idea that Christ holds ultimate authority, that we've got a changed reality. How can we have equality in Christ, yet have so much inequality in the society, let alone in the nucleus of the family? How does someone relate to their slaves now that we've got this changed reality? How does a husband relate to his wife now that there is a a changed reality of equality in Christ? How do parents parent in this way? So Colossians 3 gives us instructions into these relationships and instructions regarding the responsibility of husbands and wives, of children and fathers, of slaves and masters. And so as we begin um, with our reading this morning with verse 17, it's important to include that verse because it says, Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, reading the verses underneath in context, in terms of how we conduct ourselves in our household, it makes a lot more sense. Because we're not just talking about whatever you do in your massive business dealings, do it in the name of the Lord. Whatever you do in the schoolyard, do it in the name of the Lord. Whatever you do when you're helping those in great need, do it in the name of the Lord. We're not just saying when we're praying for the sick, we're doing it in the name of the Lord. All things that you do, do in the name of the Lord. Doing everything in the name of the Lord applies to every aspect of our lives every part of our daily life. So doing everything in the name of the Lord applies to our home life as well. Because, I don't know about you, but the reality of our home life is probably they're the ones, the people in my household are the ones that see the real me. They see every part of me. 
When my kids have taken 25 minutes in the bathroom and are running 15 minutes late to get to school, they see the real me. <laughs> they do see the real me. <laughs> when I'm tired and cranky, they're the ones that see the outpouring of that. See, the nucleus of family, whether that be a husband and wife with their 2.4 children, is it still 2.4 children? Is that the average? I don't know. It's probably up to 3.1 maybe. Let's call it 3.1. <laughs> or whether it be a young married couple or a retired uh, empty nest family or a single person living with other people or living on their own, the main nucleus of family is a place where the very real you comes out. I wonder how often you'd, uh, your home life would show up at the train station. I wonder how often your, your home life would live way out in, the, in your workplace or your office or at school. How many people can, can relate to the crazy dash coming to church in the morning? The crazy dash. If you've had kids, you've had the crazy dash. That's the, uh, the dash to get the kids out of, out of bed in Sunday morning, get them into church, and I'd do it. Get in the car! What are you doing? And look at that crazy dash. To get, and then you get to church and, huh, you know, <laughs> lovely morning. I'm doing very well, thank you. <laughs> it's a very different thing, isn't it? Frazzled on the inside, uh, but calm on the outside. Our nucleus, we have freedom in the nucleus of our family, don't we, to be who we are. Well, should it be this way? Well, we come back to verse 17, don't we? Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord. Our conduct shouldn't be based upon what we can do, rather about what God's doing within us, transforming us to be. So our home lives must also reflect this reality. Paul looks at three relationships in the household. Wives and husbands, children and fathers, it says fathers, and slaves and masters. Within those three relationships, Paul gives instructions to both parties, not just to one part of that relationship, to both parties. And, and, um, and that's countercultural. Prior to this, any teaching would only address the husband, the father, or the slave. The wife, the child, uh, sorry, and the master, not the slave. The wife, the child, and the slave, they don't get the recognition. They don't get the teacher's time as such. But as we look at what is said to each person in the relationship, there's one constant that you're to submit or to obey, not because of the male figure which was the dominant one in that society, but rather because of Christ. Paul shifts the base of authority from the husband, the, the master, and, and the father back to its rightful place, who is Christ, because he's the one who has all authority, ultimate authority. I found a diagram that can help uh, sort of us understand that a little bit, and where the relationship would not have that uh, central Christ in the middle. The husband would have authority over wife, children, and slaves. That's how it was. Yet Paul transforms it to say, actually, there's, a, there's, there's someone in the middle. There's a middle space here, and that's Christ. So thinking about that, we can learn as we look at each pair. We've got to take them in pairs. We can't separate one from the other. We can see what we can learn about how we conduct ourselves in our family. So first of all, wives and husbands. He uses this, wives and husbands. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be a possession rather than a person? To be a possession rather than a person. You know, when I was at university, we were numbers. I don't know if university still does that or whether they actually call you by your name anymore, but um, we were a number. You go to your exam and you wouldn't put your name down, you just put your number. That was who we were. We were just another number. Um, that was all that was needed. 
In the culture of what Paul was dealing with, if you were a woman or a slave or even a child, you were a possession. You weren't a person as such. You were seen as a possession. You were something that was owned. Even boys who would grow to be men, who would grow to become these authority people, at the time were possessions. They were still under the absolute authority of the male in the house. And that's what mattered in that culture. The male had the ultimate authority. And, and it comes to us a question of responsibility, doesn't it? A possession actually has no responsibility. Therefore, there is no, uh, no authority. Now, I haven't played my guitar yet, but I've got a guitar that I bought a couple of years back. And uh, I love my guitar. I'd had a guitar for 18, 20 years, and I bought this new guitar, and I love it. It's my prized possession. It's the one thing in my life that, that I probably would hug as much as Solari if I was allowed to. I love my guitar. Yet my guitar does not help me make life decisions. It's a possession. My guitar does not bring me solace when I'm hurt or sad. It's just a possession. My guitar does not help me get the kids' lunches ready when we're rushing out in the morning. It's just a possession. Because my guitar, although it sounds great and I love it a lot, it's just a possession. It has no authority to speak into the important spaces of my life. A possession can't do that. And in the same way, in Paul's world, women, children, and slaves were possessions. They had no authority or responsibility to speak into situations. They just were. And we might think that's obsolete in our world. We might think, well, that doesn't happen today. Yet a few years back, I had the opportunity to go to Bangladesh. And as one of the poorest countries on the planet, I saw firsthand how there was a similar system towards women and children. We visited these women's groups, and I've got a, a slide with one of the ladies. And um, if you can go to the next slide, uh, that'd be great. And with, within these women's groups, they developed, they brought the women together to empower women to develop some skills. And they teach them how to sew and teach them how to do some skills to then be able to um, earn some money for themselves and to help the whole community. There was one group of women that we met, and this lady was a part of it. And they were in this really remote village. They just had lean-tos as their homes. Um, they'd have a whole family in this one lean-to. That was it. Um, and they'd have one toilet that, that serves the whole village. It was, it was a remote village. But they took it upon themselves to raise funds to go and to the marriage offices in Bangladesh and get marriage recognised legally. Now, you think, oh, that's, that's a nice thing to do, but it's not really anything. But this is what happened. Without the legally recognised marriage, the woman in the relationship was totally vulnerable. Absolute vulnerability. If a man decided for whatever reason that they got up in the morning and said, I don't want you as my wife anymore, they would just leave. They would just go. There was no divorce. There was no, because there's no legal formality towards it. They could just leave without any consequence to the man. They move on, find another wife and continue with life. But the consequence for that woman was enormous. Most likely they'd have children, so the children would be totally dependent on, on the mum, who hasn't got a wage, who hasn't got work, who's not able to do anything, because she was just a possession. So with, with that sort of gone, it would mean the woman would struggle to feed children, they'd go out to, to work and leave their young children at home, and they'd have to often beg it would totally outcast the wife and the children from their culture and community. So there was no recourse to any compensation either. 
the husband was gone, so there was nothing that they can get. No, no money could come in from them because there was no formalities. So these women, they formalized marriage in the community. They went out and they formalized it. They got into the, um, the marriage register and formalized it. It was amazing. But in doing so, it changed the social norm of them being a possession, and they all of a sudden became a person. In verse 18, Paul doesn't seem to specifically change the cultural norm of a husband being head of the family. He doesn't say that. But if we take the words, wives submit to your husbands, we hear, we hear the negative connotation, but there's so much more to it. So we've got a problem. If we look at the secular de- definition of submit, it says this. Um, it says from the Oxford Dictionary, accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will of another person. And you think, oh, okay, if I've got to submit, I've got to submit to someone who is superior to me, to my husband or whatever. Paul doesn't, doesn't bring Ephesians into this equation at the moment. Ephesians 5.21 says, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence of Christ. So in Colossians, he doesn't use that. Because if he did, we could go, oh, well, there's an equality in submission. But he doesn't use that in this, in this case. But if we live with that idea that we are equal in Christ, then we actually start to see submission in a different way. I like uh, what Mark Maynell's definition of, in his book, Colossians for You, says. He says, one equal person's voluntary acceptance of the authority of another equal person. I think that's great. Because it's saying submission isn't with someone up here is forcing someone down here to submit. It says we're, we're on a level playing field in Christ. Submission is one person's voluntary acceptance of the authority of another person on an equal playing field. So Paul calls wives call to wives to submit is not based upon the husband being this dominant figure. Not anymore. Rather, Paul addresses the wife to submit as is fitting to the Lord because of what God's given them. Paul places authority back in the hands of Christ rather than of the husband. Christ has authority in this relationship and says submission as an equal to the husband is totally based upon Christ, not on the husband's authority over the wife. We also can't read that without the challenge for the male in the relationship. We all have to have responsibilities in the marriage relationship, and Paul demands of the husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. David Garland writes in his commentary on Colossians, most of the ancient world did not expect marriage to be grounded in love. It was considered to be an accord, albeit an unequal one, between a man and a woman to produce legitimate heirs. That's what marriage was about. It wasn't about love, it was about heirs. So if love came into that marriage, well, that was great. That was good. A byproduct as such. But Paul now brings this new order to marriage. The husband knows a new kind of love through Jesus, and now he's commanded to show that same kind of love to his wife, and not just see his wife as a possession that might bring an heir to our family. One commentary said, if a wife is asked to submit, submit, it's to the husband's love not to his tyranny. The second part of this is, husbands shall not treat your wives harshly. And um, I giggle at that a little bit because if a husband wants his wife to submit to them, then they need to be worthy of submitting, don't they? So don't treat your your wife harshly because they're not going to respect that. The way the wife respects and submits from an equal standpoint is because they feel comfortable enough to do so because the love that you show them. Because they're being shown a love that comes from Christ. So husbands, 
or even young fellows that are, are not married. You've got to hear that. Love your wife and refrain from being harsh to her because she will respect you. She will, she will respect you without even you needing to ask for that. If you love your wife as you've been called to, the fruit of that love is not going to be a harshness towards her. The fruit is going to be patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And you'll see that come back through the marriage relationship. We've all got a role to play within that relationship. So I wonder why as if today when you go home, if there's some way that you can show your husband some respect or, or, or love in some way that makes him go, wow, that was amazing. And I wonder, husbands, if you can find or show a way to your wife that you have a deep love for her, a deep love, in a way that you haven't shown her in a little while, because we've all got a role in the husband and wife relationship. The second thing that Paul brings up is children and fathers. Uh, once again, Paul breaks this social norm and he addresses children. Children wouldn't get the attention normally of the teacher, let alone have the teacher sort of address them. Yet Jesus himself demonstrates the importance of children when he, he says, don't send the children away, send the children to me. He, he equates them to the kingdom of God. So children were considered the possession of their father in that um, culture. The father could do with his child what he, what he pleased. The, the father actually probably had more right to be harsh with the children than they did with their slaves. Slaves were protected by some rights at least, whereas children, well, they were the absolute possession of their father. And it's good to have the kids, the young people in um, church this morning as I speak um, because I want to let them know. I want to let you know, if you're a child here today, we value you. We really do. I had the opportunity to, to sneak out of the service uh, during the, the service last week. If you haven't saw me walking out, I wasn't because Kylie, I didn't like what Kylie said. Kylie was awesome last week. Wasn't she awesome? It was so good. But I just wanted to see what was going on in our children's ministry. And it was amazing. If you've never been to see it, chat to Dave or chat to someone because it was incredible. You see kids just in little groups, just engaging in scripture with, with their, their leader. Um, I, I, it, was, it was awesome to see uh, little Jasper's group with Dave. They were so excited to be wanting to open the Bible. They were literally excited. That it, they, were, they were excited. Like They had this excitement. And you sit there going, that's value for kids. That's what we want to show, that value for children making crafts, engaging with scripture. It was wonderful. And if you've never done children's ministry, I'd, I'd, I'd say, I don't know if Dave is happy with this, but I'd say, seek Dave out and say, can I come and have a look at what happens in our children's ministry on a Sunday morning? Because it's incredible. We put a large emphasis on our children's ministry because we value children. We understand their importance within the greater kingdom of God. So, you're loved. Kids, you're loved by us. We love you. We think you're great. But kids, you need to keep listening as well. Because the Bible has something to say to you specifically. The Bible says, obey your parents in everything. Jasper, get out of the bathroom. <laughs> Tarquin, can you put your clothes away? <laughs> it's a little bit of like the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Honour your mother and father. Now, it's important to understand that this responsibility to obey your parents is actually based upon an assumption. And the assumption is that your parents are not going to ask you to do anything that is not good for you. Jesus himself assumes the best in parents. Because in Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching about the character of God. He says, he puts that assumption, if a child asks for bread, would you give him a stone? Of course you wouldn't. You'd do the best for your child. So we're working upon that assumption that parents are not preparing rocks for their kids, but they're preparing a feast. 
But like we heard with, uh, with the women, the child's obligation to obey their father is not just about the father as such. Children, obey your parents in everything. Why? Not so that you can be, win um, some Xbox time, or not so that your parents will go and take you out for ice cream, or that you can have praise from your parents. No, the, fa- the, the, the responsibility or the focus is transformed to obedience to Christ. Children, obey your parents in everything. Why? Because this pleases the Lord. Why obedience? Because obedience to your parents is actually obedience to Christ. You do one, the other follows. So with this command to children, there's also a command to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. And once again, we're talking about authority space, aren't we? So it's, it might be fathers in that culture because fathers were the dads, the male was the dominant figure. But in our society, we also have the women that are quite, uh, as, as a parental sort of space, we have authority over our children. So fathers and mothers, do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. The word provoke means to exasperate, to irritate, to frustrate. Has anyone ever had a child frustrated with you? (laughs) Being a parent and a dad, it's hard. It hits home. Because I'm a parent of a a, a, a pre-teen, tween, I suppose you call them, nearly teen. And sometimes it's hard to find the balance of expecting something of them and allowing freedom for them to explore. Because... I sometimes do know what is better for them. And I sometimes think they think they know what's better for them, but it's going to be bad for them. So you've got to listen to me. In this command, Paul, I don't think Paul is suggesting that we give up our rights as parents to, to, um, to authority because we've got to teach them and help them grow. Because it's, but it's just hard. So as I see my kids, if you ask them to do a chore, it's almost always met with a, do we have to do that? So we've got to walk the tightrope. Giving discipline, keeping on track is important. But giving them freedom to be the young people that they can grow up to be in Christ is just as important. I, uh, I wanted to give a couple of hints that I've learnt over the journey, and I'm not perfect in parenting. Under-discipline, so not enough discipline, causes exasperation. Maybe it's born out of unstated expectations. But if we don't give the, uh, the discipline that they need, then they can't meet any expectations, so then frustration will come in. Over-discipline causes a frustration as well because it, releases, it doesn't allow them the freedom to, to, to learn, to grow, to explore. But love releases that exasperation of the child. Be willing to admit your mistakes. Be willing to say, hey, I might have overstepped the, the, the mark there. I expected too much of you. And it comes back to verse 17. Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord. So treating our children with discipline when discipline is needed is good. Yet loving them at every opportunity not only helps us as parents, but it helps the child to obey as well. We're going to move on to slaves and masters. So he's looked at uh, wives and husbands, children and fathers or parents, and now slaves and masters. Now, we have a problem with, with this imagery a little bit because of um, the, the 1700 sort of slavery movement, um, sort of England and America, where people were, were in stocks and they were made to work the land. And we've got that image of slavery, don't we? And we thank people like Wilberforce who said, no, I'm going to make a stand against it. He shook the systems and said, there's nothing right with this slavery. 
However, the, Paul, the, the world that Paul lived in, it was totally different. They would not be able to conceive of a society without slavery. In fact, there was one estimation that at the time of Caesar Augustus, the richest 5% of Roman citizens owned 1 million slaves. slaves. That's incredible. And another 2 million were employed somewhere else. So out of a total population of, say, 7.5 million people, almost half of those were slaves. Couple that with the fact that biblical slavery was often an act of mercy to provide for, for poor rather than exploitation. Slavery was very different to what we might have as an image of slavery in our minds. However, the household code still remains. A slave was still the possession of a master, and generally the male figure as well. So here Paul is talking to the possessions, the slaves, who are obedient to their masters. Because if they weren't obedient, then they'd be punished. Paul, however, adds to that new order, one where Jesus has authority again. So he says to slaves, Obey your earthly masters in everything, in everything, and do it with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. You can imagine that it would be a, a, a role that you just you, you wouldn't get the thanks that you, you expected. It would be tough. But the purpose has now changed. The reason for serving or for, for being a, a, a servant in a household isn't because of they made me do it, but the action has moved from one where the authority now lies in Christ. For, it's for Christ's sake that they are to, to obey, no longer for the master's sake. Slaves now serve a higher authority, and that authority calls them to serve their earthly master with honour and respect. And turning from the slaves, Paul doesn't mince his words. Uh, turning to the masters, Paul doesn't mince his words. He says, treat your slaves justly and fairly. Why? Because your servant is the master in heaven. Now, we don't have slaves as such at the moment in, in our society. Modern-day equivalent may be our work situations, where we work. Perhaps you have a demanding boss who you feel totally disempowered by. How do you continue to work with utter integrity? By working with the sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. How do you do it? Well, you work knowing that you're giving glory to God and giving him ultimate authority in your life by doing the role that you've been set out to do. There's a story that, that I found. A boy, a boy went to a farmer and asked to be given a job as a hired hand. The farmer asked, are you willing to work? And the boy said, please, uh, please say, yes, sir, I can sleep well on a windy night. That's all he said. He said, uh, okay, can I trust you to look after my things, said the farmer. And again, the boy said, please, sir, yes, sir, I can sleep well on a windy night. The farmer asked several other questions to determine if the boy was honest and trustworthy, and to each question he had the same reply. Please, sir, yes, sir, can I can sleep well on a windy night. Deciding that the boy may be a little simple-minded, the farmer hired him anyway because there was something about the boy that he liked. He had something in him. And the boy proved to be a willing worker, and everything went well until one night when the big storm came up. The farmer heard howling and rushed to the boy's room. Get up! I need you, he shouted. Let's go tie down the haystacks. Let's put up the tools and secure the barn doors. The boy was so sound asleep, the farmer couldn't get him up. I can sleep well on a windy night, all right? Fearing to waste time trying to wake the boy and get him up, the farmer rushed out to, to see about his things in his farm. When he came to the haystacks, he already found them tied down. He found the tools in their proper places in the barn, and the barn door was closed securely. 
As he went back into the house, he realised what that boy meant about sleeping well on a windy night. He meant that each day he did his work well, and even in the midst of a storm, he could sleep. I wonder if we have that attitude in the work that we go about. Regardless of the storms around us, regardless of how hard it is at our workplace or in our places where we uh, serve, do we still put all of ourselves in, knowing that we're honouring God through that work? See, Paul didn't get rid of slavery. He knew it was a massive part of the culture that he, he was in. And his readers would be the ones that had slaves as well. However, just as he did with wives and husbands, children and fathers... He's wrestled with this idea that in Christ we're actually all equal. We are one in Christ. We're on a level playing field. This is a changed reality. Equality is essential in the eyes of God. Therefore, it is vital that if you had a slave, if you were a wife, if you were a father, how do you conduct yourselves in a way that honours the relationships that are around us but honours God as well? The answer is, release authority from one human and give that authority back to Christ where it belongs. Because God holds the ultimate authority within the nucleus of our household, within the individual, and within the church. Let's pray. Loving God, as we have looked at some challenging passages, I pray that you help us to understand that you're drawing our eyes to you and not to individuals. That loving God, when we're called to submit, to obey, to love, we're doing it out of an understanding that of the, the changed reality that you brought us to. A changed reality that says we are all equal. We are all together. And so loving God, we give you thanks and praise that we learn from these, these passages some truths that fit into our lives now. May we go this week into a changed reality, living our lives differently because of your word. Amen.